HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning, and yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music has been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Guys, it's sometime in September 2018, and I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio. We've been off for a few months. I was in the hospital, and uh, we're back today, so I don't even know what day it is. But um, look who we got in this room, man. We're, we're, we're trying to kick off the fall season with uh, some of our favorite people from the New York City craft independent beer scene. Uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Justin Phillips from Beer Table. I'm, well, yeah, here. Noah Evan, also from Beer Table. I'm sorry, I thought we were going in like order, and then I realized it's uh, so I've already screwed up your show, Jimmy. Welcome back. Uh, I'm John Hall from various things that I do with words and beer. But you're the author of? Of uh, the new book that's out called Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint, uh, available where fine books are sold. Well, it's great to have you guys on the show, and I really appreciate it. This show means a lot to me. Heritage Radio Network is such a very special on air. It's a podcast. It's been a radio network. It's, we're going into our 10th year. Uh, next year, there's going to be a lot of celebrations, and I'm really proud that this is the ninth year of Beer Sessions Radio. We've done over 440 episodes, but guys like John and uh, Justin, you guys have been on quite a few few shows over the years, so it's good to be back. Uh, I know some nice listeners here. heard yeah. about me. Um, 
you know, I had some crazy spine infection disease. And um, I was just, just got out of the hospital today. So, of course, the first thing I'm doing <laughs> is coming out to Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. And our new uh, engineer here, Matt Patterson's here. We got Katie Moseman and, and Kat Hello. Johnson. Uh, from the radio network here with us. So, so Ken- uh, Kennedy couldn't be bothered to show up. Uh, your producer extraordinaire couldn't be bothered to show and up. Justin Kennedy, a lot, a lot of new things. There's Dylan. We've got a new intern, and, and uh, Justin Kennedy's his kids start in uh, some excuses, pre-K, excuses. and he has to pick her up. So, a lot of changes, a lot of new things. But um, you know, the world beer has it, it's 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 very different. You know, and first thing, what you guys have done, Justin. I know beer table. You originally you were this really awesome little boutique uh, craft beer bar restaurant. And now you guys are like specialty retailers in uh, in Grand Central, you know. And and John, you know, I've known you as a writer, but I think you really sum it up in your book, Think Beer, Drink Beer. You really covered all the bases. And um, I think we just start talking about that that you know big question is you know how do we define the beer that we're drinking? You know, it's what are we drinking? Is it in your book? You say it's there's craft, there's small batch, but you, you, it seems like everyone's pushing the independent. Uh, label from the Brewers Association, and you, you talk about that in your book. So, where, where are we at? What are we drinking? How do we define these beers that we like? I, I guess the biggest thing is I don't know if we need to define these beers. You know, if, if it's a beverage that's made with water and malt and hops and yeast, and it's done in in a brewing process that creates beer at the end of the day, be it, be it a saison, be it a pale ale, be it a New England IPA or a pastry stout or whatever else is out there these days. Anytime that we start putting words before the word beer, things get muddy. So in the beginning, it was microbrew, um, and then when the industry kind of broke down a little bit, um, and and we had this sort of um, uh, bubble burst, as it were, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the word microbrew became dirty, so they needed to rebrand, and so it became craft. And, and craft beer was supposed to be this awesome thing, and, and, and it is in a lot of ways. But it is such a tough thing to define. You know, is it ownership? Is it spirit? Is it technicality? Is it, is it who knows what? And so, you know, now the larger players, Anheuser-Busch and, and Miller and all of them, have started buying uh, what were formerly craft brewers, Goose Island, Blue Point, etc. And so that word has gotten muddy. And now the Brewers Association, thanks so much, the Brewers Association is... Uh, pushing independent as the next thing. So drink independent beer. The problem that I have with this is I don't know what independent tastes like, you know? Um, and, and, and the problem is there are so many small breweries that are out there these days who are passionate people who are making uh, beer. But it's it like the 4th of July beer. Pretty much. Well, yeah. yeah, but like, okay, so it's fireworks and explosions and eating too many hot dogs down at Nathan's. Like, okay, like... I don't know if I necessarily want that in January, but, um, you know, the thing is, and I can sum it up this way. I was at this brewery in Washington State, and uh, really nice people, really passionate people who had opened up their brewery. And I stopped in, and I said, I only have a few minutes before I go. Uh, What's your flagship? And they said, oh, we make an alt. And I was like, that's awesome that you guys have an alt as your flagship. And as they're pouring the pint, I'm looking up behind the bar. And they have all of their T-shirts, all of their merchandise, and they have this upside-down bottle logo, this Brewers Association, National Ketchup Association logo that they have uh, going these days to certify independence right on the sleeve of the T-shirt. And I say, wow, that's really cool. I haven't seen that on, on clothing before. And they said, well, we, we believe that we should wear our independence on our sleeve. And I was like, that's cool. And then they put a glass of diacetyl down in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> How can you support independence when the beer is 
clearly flawed. And so, you know, I'd rather drink a thousand Budweiser's before I'd rather drink a full pint of diacetyl. And so <laughs> when we start putting some of these words in front of beer these days, it sort of muddies who it is. I like knowing where my dollars go. I like supporting small local businesses if I'm getting a good product in return. And independence doesn't guarantee that I'm getting quality beer in return. So in the book, I advocate saying, if we're going to call it anything, let's just call it beer. Let the chips fall as they may and then start to figure it out from there. So let's back up. So Noah, at, at Grand Central, I mean, you guys have a very busy beer store there. You're doing, I call them, I'm almost going to call them specialty beers. I mean, yeah, how, I how would you describe to your customers what you're selling? Um, I try and tell them we focus on smaller breweries. Um, we try and support as many independent breweries as we can. But yeah, the focus is on small and independent. Um, can't always do that. And obviously things have gotten pretty convoluted in the last few years with acquisitions and private equity getting involved. But, you know. I'm curious, because you guys have a great shop. And you guys get to taste everything that comes in. It's a smaller shop, so you can you probably have to have difficult conversations with breweries sometimes and being like, hey, we really want to support you because you're a small guy, but we can't sell this. Yeah, that absolutely happens. You have to tell people, just don't see it up on our shelves. We really didn't do it for us. And it's a bummer when it's people you know and like, but I, I, yeah, I guess so. I agree with what you're saying, that foremost, our, our uh, dedication is to quality. Um, and then yeah, because I mean I, we have it, other stipulations on top of that. Because the other part of it too is, 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 is as a journalist and, and other folks, if if you gave somebody knowingly uh, sold them a pint that was filled with diacetyl or you know oxidized or or whatever it was, it, it'd be a poor reflection on you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know when our credibility goes in terms of being able to provide people with good beer, then what do we have? Yeah. Ooh, I like that sound. I think you said that really well, John. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So for me, beer table, I mean, like the vision from the very beginning was to not care about style categories or to care about anything other than flavor and deliciousness and to organize, you know, our menu and our shelves in the store is all organized by flavor. It's always been that way. And that's all we care about really is like, is is it going to taste good and be a good experience? What what are some of the flavors that you categorize? Uh, For us, we do it as a progression. So we do it as like from before a meal all the way through a nightcap. You know, that's how I think of the entire shelf left to right. And that's how the menu was at the old place. That's really cool because you can have so, all sorts of styles before a meal. I mean, you can start yeah, a meal with absolutely. like a you know with a brown ale or you know with a saison, and it doesn't something. have to be low alcohol to be early. You know, yeah. it can be you know anything. Yeah. So it gives us a lot of freedom, and it lets people who know nothing about beer really enjoy the shopping experience and kind of be able to help themselves, even though we're there to talk to them about whatever they want to know. And these guys do a great job with lots of info. So you're not defining it, no. It's just like it's like well, over yeah. here is some after happy hour before dinner. Then here's dinner. Dessert course. Exactly. Yeah. Nightcap. I mean, and we definitely get the guys in who we describe that to, and they immediately go straight to the farthest right corner where our post-dinner <laughs> drinks would be, and like, oh, this is me. <laughs> so, so it's like the guys at the festival, like, give me your strongest. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> in the back, yeah. sir. I've got a 20-minute train ride. Do you How many 12% stouts can I have? Do you guys have those behind the, uh, the beaded curtain, like at the old uh, video stores, like that kind of thing? John, you've had quite a life, man. You, you, you know, from your book, I know more life, about you than I ever knew. So you started as a journalist. So yeah. You're a journalist journalist. Yeah. And uh, you started as a journalist. And how did you start writing about beer? Accidentally. Because now people think that's like the dream job. Yeah. And until the morning, like the next morning, like everybody thinks it's a great job. But then, you know, those late nights are kind of murder. Um I, you know, I fell into it accidentally. It, 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 as a reporter, you're sort of trained to follow your curiosity. 
And uh, as a reporter, and I used to cover crime and politics and environmental issues and pretty much anything under the sun. I was a general assignment reporter. Uh, and in my free time, I discovered good beer and I started drinking about good beer. So it was this sort of natural progression of one day being like, hey, I should write about this. And I had some editors that were really cool and encouraging and, and, and let me do it. And then after I left daily newspapers, folks like Tony Forder at Ale Street News and um, uh, oh gosh, uh, Tom Daldorf out at Celebrator gave me a start in the beginning. And then I was able to go and work at All About Beer as the editor for a couple of years and write some books along the way. And now I'm at Craft Beer and Brewing. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a weird decade and a half of, of writing about beer. Uh, I never thought that this would be my full-time profession, but man, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's, I get to be front and center for some of the coolest things happening in beer right now and talk with really smart people who know a lot of a lo really cool things about beer, and then I get to communicate that to people who are really enthusiastic. So what I do is a, is a real privilege. That's great, man. Thanks for coming on. So Justin, talking about what are we drinking, um, what are we drinking? This is my first time to have it. I'm going to have Noah talk about it. <laughs> uh, this is my first time as well, but oh, this is extra, had. extra from Stillwater, one of our you know, favorite breweries. Yeah, I really dig um, it. And this is a double IPA in the style of a brewed IPA. Um, oh, is that is what they're going with it? Okay. A, new, a new thing that's come on the scene somewhat recently, definitely in the last six months, I would say. We yeah. started hearing about it. Started out in San Francisco, um, Social Kitchen and Brewery. Um, and it's called a, a brewed IPA. Brute. 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 Oh, yeah, brute. you know, like, like uh, Dry. champagne. Yeah. yeah. And what they're doing is adding an enzyme that breaks down sugars and malts so they're very easily fermentable. Um, it's something that's used in beer generally, in bigger beers, like big, big IPAs, big stouts to kind of lighten the body a little bit and make the fermentation a little bit easier. But they're adding it to these usually sub-7% beers to um, really let the yeast get at the sugars, trying to get it down to you know to zero degrees Play-Doh, um, and making like a super crisp, clean, dry, hoppy beer. Um, and if we're thinking about the progression of IPA, rough IPA style categories, um, this is almost a reaction to what is now being called New England style IPA, which, um, you know, not always, but definitely can have a lot of sweetness in it, heavier, not heavier body, but bigger body, more mouthfeel. This is super crisp, dry. So it drinks light, but it packs a punch, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, let's see what the ABV is. This is 8%, but I don't know that I would have guessed that this is no an 8% no. beer. It's got this really nice lime vanilla thing going on to it as well, like a little bit of like a tropical pina colada uh, type thing going on in the background. And where does, on the shelf from before dinner to dinner, after dinner, where does this beer sit at? I would put it within the first third. Right now, I think it's sitting somewhere near the middle, right? I actually don't think this is out yet, so I'm going to write Ooh. that down. And I would, not, I would drop it in as a first course beer. Yeah, brewed IPAs. Uh, I, I got the question um, actually just this afternoon from, from somebody saying, like, you know, like, where do you put brewed IPAs with food? And uh, I've been struggling in the back of my mind. I haven't come up with a good answer to that email yet. But yeah. have you guys have you guys thought about that as well? I would think. I mean, with this, I think I think definitely could handle some acidity. I think you know, as a late summer thing, this is delicious with tomatoes. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. I think that could work really nicely. Whereas, you know, any of the bigger New England style IPAs are just sugar bombs, and it just you yeah, know, yeah, it rolls over everything just else that's on the plate. Destroys everything in its way. Yeah, it's uh, you mentioned Social Kitchen. With. They're 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 crushing it these days. They're leading the charge. And there's breweries like Verboten out in uh, Colorado, which are also doing some really cool things with them. And I think we're going to see more and more of these, Jim. It's it's kind of cool. No, it's news to me. I mean, you guys at Beer Table, I don't know how people can subscribe, but you actually have a great newsletter. And uh, this is the second, second show we did based on you guys. We did um, a barrel age beer show earlier this year, and was inspired by your newsletter. And now this is you guys talking about the Brewed IPA. Uh, who writes your newsletter? Everyone. Is Megan it? sort of leads the charge on organizing everything, and then uh, everyone participates. Hey, Megan, welcome to the show. Welcome Hi. back. Hey, Megan, Megan Sachs, we just came in. One of your managers. Yeah, and I was just saying how great your newsletter is, and people—it's—it's—it's it's nice to see that you guys put the time into, you know, communicating, um, you know, what's going on in the beer scene. So I really like that newsletter. I should correct myself. The email newsletter is all Megan now. Our printed newsletter is everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's but a very different thing to your table, it's great, Megan. I just want to say thank, thank you because, like I said, this is the second show we've done based on your newsletter. Thanks so much. <laughs> Last Thanks one was barrel aged <laughs> beers, <laughs> and now it's brewed IPA today. Thank you. But we're talking with John. He just wrote this great book, Think Beer, Drink Beer. And we're talking about, you know, what, what are we drinking? We defined a little bit. Going back to, you know, we drink an independent label, craft beer, small batch. And uh, I think what you guys are doing really showcases where, where beer is at. I mean, talk about how you guys sell beer. You know, t- tell us what some of the philosophy of, of the shop, because you seem like you've really had a big influence on it. Uh, well, when I came in, I mean, I just kind of tried to carry on what Justin and Trisha had already set up. Um which is uh, a place to celebrate beer um, and to make sure it's included on the table. I mean, it's in the name, Beer Table, and that's really what we try to focus on. It's not a standalone beverage. Uh, it very much so belongs on the table and with food, much in the same way that a lot of people associate wine. Um, I think, arguably, it pairs a lot better with a lot of different food than wine. It's not so pigeonholed into, you know, this goes with this and this goes with that. I think it, you know... As we're still seeing so many new things come out, like the Brewed IPA, there's so much stuff to play around with, with flavor and, you know, comparatively where we're at with beer now to where wine is, it's still so new. There's so much stuff to experiment with, and I think that we really try and celebrate that in the shop, and, you know, we don't try and say that we're the authority, we're learning right along with everybody, and so it's fun to kind of take that ride with our customers. Yeah, I mean, how can you guys keep up? I mean, John, in your book, you said there's like 7,000 breweries in America now. Yeah, we're getting up to that number now with another 1,000 or so in planning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible to keep up. I yeah. mean, you're lucky that you find the good stuff, right? Yeah. We have a lot of uh, good spies out there for us, so it certainly helps. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot to keep up with now. That's great. What, what are some other breweries that, that, that I haven't heard of that um, you guys are selling? Because I feel like every time you're on the show, there's beer I've never, never had before. I mean, something fun that just came in from Charleston, Edmund's Oast. Yeah. Really, really awesome stuff. Um, we actually had tasting with them yesterday. We've got one going on as we speak at our World Trade Center location. So if you're listening live, head down there, try some Edmund's Oast. Um, but yeah, they do some fun I'm, stuff. I'm on my way through there on my way home. So now <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. sorry, April, I'll be home late. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've got this. That's fine. It's one of my favorite things that we've got in from them. It's an English mild. It's under 4%, done with some black tea that's roasted down in Charleston. 
Um, and it's just a delicious, delicious beer. And you don't see that many American breweries making milds right now. Not enough. No. One of the breweries, actually, that I'm really excited about these days uh, is called Bond Place. And they're out in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And they're doing milds as well. Uh, Sam Masato, who used to be a bartender up at... Uh, Pony Bar back in the day, uh, one, of, one of the great advocates of beer. Uh, we've written about him at uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine a little bit. We've had him on the podcasts, and uh, uh, he's doing a lot of miles. One, I think, at uh, GABF last year, Great American Beer Festival last year, or World Beer Cup, one of those where they hand out medals. Um, but, yeah, he's doing some miles as well. It's nice to see the style come back. It's, uh, it's so nice. One of my favorites, for yeah. sure. I think the whole, the whole brown ale family, you know, people are – there's a lot more potential with it, but I don't know if people are... Are people drinking brown? I mean... No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to add <laughs> that, like, I, I love that these guys get excited about this stuff and about old things and that it's not all about the new breweries and the new beers coming out. We try to represent that, but a big thing that they do a really good job with is also trying to keep the old classics and keep older styles and, like, true diversity on the shelf so it's not all just big, hazy IPAs. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think... In the last, you know, year, two years, we've seen somewhat of a return. The popularity amongst craft beer enthusiasts, bloggers, I think. So many more breweries are doing really, really quality versions of Pilsners and Hellas Lagers and, and other styles, too. But um, I feel like maybe brown things are going to be the next little micro trend in, in beer. We can dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. In a perfect world, that'd be nice. Cool. We're off to a great start, guys. Hey, Matt, the new engineer's here. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We've got the crew from Beer Table, one of the finest specialty beer shops in New York City, and uh, John Hall, the author of Think Beer, Drink Beer. So we were, just, we were actually just tasting a, a mild ale from uh, Edmunds Ost in Charleston, which is new to me, but um, the style is not. You know, mild is another one of these dark, you know, lighter bodied, you know, brown colored beers. And uh, just it brings us to a 
one of the chapters in John's book, you talk about the beer ingredients. And I really like this. There, there's some really good lines in your book. Uh, from America the Beautiful, that line, amber waves of grain. And John's talking about grains and malts, you know, which give color to beer. Um, his line is, that pint of pale ale is downright patriotic. Yeah, you know, and it's so interesting, right? As, as kids, we, we stand up and we sing America the Beautiful. And when we become adults and we actually I, – I, I was thinking about because, you know, I was uh, uh, at a, uh, one of my niece's plays or something and they sang America the Beautiful. And I realized that these kids are singing about amber waves of grain. And while, yes, it probably is feed or bread or anything else like that, uh, it's also beer. And that as kids, we're not necessarily recognizing that. And as adults, we're not necessarily – you know, thinking about that. And, and in the larger context as well, when people talk about beers these days, I think the first thing that they zero in on, the first thing is the hop content and the aroma and the flavor that comes from hops. But really, when we look at a beer, nine times out of ten, uh, it, it's the grain bill that, that we're looking at and seeing first and making our first opinions on. But then that's almost totally sideswiped in, in favor of um, – uh, of hops, and so uh, I try to spend a little bit of time in in, in the book uh, talking about the ingredients and the way that we should actually think about them and really appreciate them as well. Um, and malt is certainly paramount, and I think in the next couple of years we'll start to see uh, if if the malt growers can 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 get out there and the brewers can certainly start talking about it. Uh, people will start saying like, "Oh, do you have X Y Z malt in this?" In the same way that we talk about Citra, a mosaic, and all of that, I think people will really start. I hope at least. Uh, to, to start to talk about their grain bill in specific terms as opposed to, oh, yeah, it's really bready. It's, uh, it's got that cracker note to it, like these generic terms that uh, don't necessarily add all that much to it. I mean, I know maybe, what, six to eight years ago, people were just starting to talk about local malt, and, you know, there are a whole bunch of malt facilities in New York State when there weren't, you know, even six years ago. Um, I don't know if that comes up, if any of the brewers are, are including, you know, descriptions of their malt or if anyone's doing, like, North Carolina local malt. I don't know if that's come up in any of the beers you guys are sampling or selling. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that when we're being sold a beer or when a distributor is bringing something in that they're saying, you're going to really want to try this. It's full of Maris Otter. But, you know, <laughs> I wish that's what they were saying. But yeah. I think kind of what you're mentioning and what we're seeing a little bit more of, um, especially with some of the smaller local breweries or the, you know, quote unquote farm breweries around, uh, you know, there's been some legislation passed that's really trying to support that, uh, industry a little bit more in the state, which is exciting. And, you know, as you said, there's more maltsters that are coming up and coming online in the, you know, in our area. So I assume that's happening elsewhere. Um, we, as far as my knowledge goes on, on that topic, it's a little bit more closer to home, so I don't know what's happening elsewhere, but, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of at least three maltsters that are within a, you know, a drivable distance, which is, for me, that's really exciting to see. You know, if, if there's enough agriculture going on to support someone who is then uh, working on the grain, and there's three of them doing that, that's pretty exciting. So I just hope that that continues to grow, um, and I think it will. Yeah, and I think maybe not something that customers are asking for yet, but we definitely have a few breweries that proudly put on their beer labels, you know, this was made with, I think, you know, Barry out of Ash will, talk, will tell you if, if the grains they're using were grown and malted in North Carolina. Um, Blackberry Farms at Tennessee will tell you this was made with floor malted, you know, whatever, Pilsner malt. Um, and I'm sure Jack's Abbey also talks about using floor malted um, 
you know, for Malted Malt. And yeah. I think the breweries are talking about it, and I think consumers are going to catch on. Um, yeah, and my hope is that it becomes something everyone's looking out for. You know, and, and Justin, your background was, you know, work for Specialty Importer, Be United, which meant you probably spent some time in, uh, in Franconia. Did you ever go there and check out Schlenkela? Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I've been a few times. Megan has been as well. You know, uh, back back in the early days, w- were those traditional German breweries? Were they talking about, you know, using local malts um, or local ingredients? I think it just naturally was. Not something to talk about necessarily. But it was assumed that they were using yeah, yeah, German. Absolutely. It was certainly a part of the conversation. I mean, part of the beer purity law, the purpose, you know, undertones of that were to make sure that Brewers were using certain grains to make sure that there was plenty of other grains left over for bread makers, you know, and, and bakeries and things of that sort. Um, so I think that it's been part of the conversation, not necessarily from like a taste perspective, uh, more from a use perspective. But, you know, I, I, they've been talking about it for, I think, hundreds of years. And, and I think in, one of the issues with the Soviet Union was that in Eastern Europe, they were they didn't really have enough. They weren't a bread basket, and I yeah. think they ended up having to use like beets and other things to make alcohol. I think that's one reason they didn't really have a beer industry, craft beer <laughs> industry for a while. But John, and you going back to your book, um, yeah. you know, back to grains. Let's let's be malt advocates. Let's be, yeah. you know, I think this is what we're onto this this segment. Um, there are some some larger craft breweries or independent breweries that that are growing their breweries. own. Yeah. Growing their own grain too, aren't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Bell's uh, is certainly. Uh, they they have a bunch of acreage in Michigan, uh, mm. and they know where all their stuff is coming from. Uh, they're the first ones who come to mind, uh, but there are certainly others as well. And you just have out in San Francisco right now. Everybody's really excited about Admiral Maltings, which uh, just went up. Uh, I want to say in Alameda, California, so just on the other side of, uh, of the Bay in San Francisco. And uh, all the breweries out there are really excited about this floor malting. They they can know where their malt is coming from now, uh, and they're using it. In fact, I was just talking to Kim, the brewer at Social Kitchen, uh, this afternoon. Um, you know, He's the guy who invented the brewed IPA, and they've actually changed one of their recipes. It used to be called... Uh, I guess Mr. Kitts uh, Pale Ale, and now they're calling it Admiral Kitts because they're using all Admiral Malting, and they got rid of their Maris Otter, and they're using their own uh, as well. So you know, brewers are really excited about working with specialty malts and finding specialty malts. And you know, if you're somebody like Bell's uh, who can afford <coughs> acreage um, and can afford your own uh, your own fields, uh, you know, I think it just it adds a little bit more depth. It adds a little bit more. Of that je ne sais quoi to, 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 to the beer when you can you know point to something and say, I know where everything in that beer came from and not just from a catalog. And that bell is a John Mallet. Yeah. He, didn't he write the book on he malt? He wrote the book on malt, and I, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, uh, he proofed my, my little uh, bit in the book about that. I, I wouldn't have sent it out into the world without a, a blessing from Mallet. Uh, because the worst thing that would happen is getting the call like two weeks after it published, and he goes, uh, "Yeah, you know, this is not accurate." Um, so I, I sort of I called all of the experts in the various fields uh, and asked them to read those chapters. So, so who are some of the experts that you consulted? Uh, with? Stan Hieronymus when it came to to, to hops, and uh, Steve Parks when it came to uh, yeast, and uh, yeah, you know, I, a whole bunch of people uh, read the book. I, I'm, I'm happy to say in advance and. 
offered some really great feedback. Randy Mosher uh, went through the entire uh, manuscript with a fine-tooth comb, and uh, I'll tell you what, one of the most humbling things in my life was getting a five-page correction email, like single uh, single type from Randy Mosher basically being like, do you know anything about beer or this industry? Um, uh, but I think it made the final product that much better. So I'm, I'm uh, forever indebted to, to all of those fine folks, uh, but especially Mr. Mosher. What so. feedback have you gotten? You know, you're trying to define what beer is, and you just yeah. want to call it beer. You know, you're not so keen on the independent label. You're not, not so keen on the craft it's label. It's kind of a silly label. Like, I, I keep what, calling what it like the, the National Catch Catch-Up Association. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it goes two ways. Uh, there's some folks who... Uh, say that I should be a bigger booster and a bigger supporter of craft or of independent. Uh, and I have to remind those folks that I'm not in the beer industry, but I cover the beer industry. And as an independent critic and as an independent uh, journalist uh, who covers this, uh, I have to speak to all sides. And so, you know, even going back to my days at All About Beer, uh, we would cover Anheuser-Busch and we would cover Miller Brewing Company because that was our job to do it. Like we're not, you know, I don't see my job as a booster. I see my job as telling, you know, curious readers uh, and listeners uh, what's happening in the world like as we know it um, at that moment. Um, you know, and then there's some really thoughtful people in the industry who are industry leaders uh, who might have to you know, toe the company line of banging this independence drum. But when I see them, they'll say privately, you know, yeah, yeah I don't disagree with you. You know, I, I'm not going to say that out loud, but, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with you. And so... Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of conversations happening on a lot of levels uh, among a lot of people and that I, I, I try to encourage drinkers, at least in this book, and, and in the same way that I think that all of us who uh, interact with the public on a, on a daily basis, um, encourage people to really think for themselves, to not just follow the company line, to not just believe that craft beer is better than all other beer, but to, to follow what it is that you like and to not be afraid sometimes to just order a bud when you're out at a bar or to just try something again because, you know, I, I think it broadens our perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I'm from the different angle. I, it's why I got in the industry in the first place. It started with wine and I feel the same way with beers. I want to go to specialty retailers like Beer Table where I know that they're, they're pre-selecting for me. Yeah. And I also like to work with, you know, select distributors. Um, let's talk about how you guys got Edmund O. So, I know them. They were brew pub in Charleston, and I was there last year. Yeah. We did a show with them in Charleston. Um, when do they open a brewery, and and, and how? Wh- what do they go through to sell in New York? Are they actually distributing here in New York, or this is like a, sh- a sh- one-time thing? Yeah, they're here. Um, as far as I know, their distribution range is very limited. Uh, New York is one of the few places outside of their home base where they're available. Um, which I think speaks volumes about how the New York beer industry has kind of grown in the last few years, that this would be the next place they wanted to jump to. Um, we've loved having it. I think it really brings kind of a fresh new perspective on some things that maybe we've kind of forgotten about. Um, you just get closer. Sorry. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what we've got here right now is the Lord Proprietor's Mild and just about everything that they've brought in has been kind of like, I don't want to call it a forgotten style, but something that's just not like sexy and doesn't get a bunch of shelf time. So like one of the best things that we've gotten from them is this like really lovely Blondale, you know, which is a style that forever ago would have been like mind changing to me. But I, ha- I couldn't tell you the last time I had a Blondale, let alone the last time I had a Blondale and was like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know? And so 
for me, it's been really fun. Uh, I would argue that almost all of their beers are meant to be had with food, which makes sense given mm. their background. Um, and yeah, I mean, this was one that we were just so stoked to see come in and, you know, we've tried to carry as much as possible from them and support them as much as possible as evidenced by having them in for tastings yesterday and today. So it's been fun. Um, as to your original question, I can't tell you exactly when they opened, uh, the brewery part, but, uh, I know it's new. Yeah. It's been in the last two years or so. If the, we just did a profile of them on the, uh, in the magazine and yeah it's been relatively new but they have the bottle shop and they have the uh the restaurant brew pub and now they have their production brewery as well and it's uh it's a hell of an operation that they have going on there it's fun to go down at charleston in the spring for the wine and food festival uh heritage radio network goes down every year so i was lucky to go there last year and i sat at the bar at the edmund's Oast, the, the pub and uh, actually a guy working there used to go to my old place jimmy's number 43 so Nice. A little bit of a beer community. So I'm um, going to take another short break, Matt. We're going to um, be back in a few minutes and uh, listen to these messages. And we'll be back on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're happy to be back. We took the summer off, and uh, we're here with uh, some of my favorite specialty beer retailers, the Beer Table Crew, Megan, Justin, and Noah. Uh, great spot in Grand Central and at the World Trade Center, um, places to get beer on the go. But they really put so much care into selecting. I feel like it's really important that this world, where there are so many breweries now, I want someone pre-selecting for me. You know, I, I want a distributor that's I, I know or importer. And now, in particular, you know, your bar or store really you need to trust them. The same way you do in a good wine shop, you know. And I feel like we're elevating beer to the level of wine. We also need establishments that are treating it that way, and that's what you're doing, right, Megan? Trying to certainly trying to. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, you know, it's, it's we're going to talk more about you as a journalist. You know. You're all about beer editor, and your book's out now, Think Beer, Drink Beer. But tell us about the the current magazine that you work for. Uh, It's called Craft Beer and Brewing. It's been around for, gosh, about half a decade now. And, uh, you know, we cover the the craft beer scene in America, uh, but also the the intersection of home brewing as well. So a lot of practical how-to advice, uh, really getting into the processes and the nitty-gritty for the the really uh, uh, active consumer of of home brewing uh, who also still drinks a lot of commercial beer as well. So it's a fun intersection uh, for me because I get to really dive into ingredients and processes, which is not something that I did too much of in the past, uh, but that's what my days are filled with now, and I get to talk to brewers about everything from you know brewing with maple syrup and salt to you know 
Brewer's Licorice and Dandelion Root and all these other fun things that are out there uh, that add some really fun flavor to, to beers. And I, I, I got to tell you what, I'm going to be calling Edmund's Oast and asking them about tea uh, because that mild that we've been drinking is just uh, burrowed itself into my brain at this point. And I, I'm not going to stop thinking about that anytime soon. So, uh, yeah, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, uh, you can check it out at beerandbrewing.com. Noah? Noah's cool, man. You got, you got some great people working with you, Justin, at Beer Table, because he's kind of nodding along, and I'm just I'm waiting for some spout of genius from this guy, because everything he says is great. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, one of the things that I love is to see our customers come in and, and start to be more interested in process and into where their, their product is coming from, which is what we're talking about. You know, we want people to be excited about malt and not just hops. Um, and, and I think it's cool that we still have publications out there that are really – putting that information out there for, you know, interested customers to, to consume. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the ingredients chapter as well of just knowing where things come from, like it's sort of amazing when, when, when you say to even like hardened beer geeks or the, the untapped warriors or the folks who, uh, you know, go on some of these message forums and, and, and scream and shout about beer all day long. It's like, hey, where do hops come from? Uh, the farm, like, and 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 they don't really know. And I, I think one of the big things that, as as all consumers, like, we need to start thinking about is water and clean water, and making sure that we have the availability to it. You know, I mean, Flint, Michigan taught us uh, that you know uh, even our municipal water isn't guaranteed to to, to be fresh. And without fresh, clean water, uh, certainly we're we're all going to be uh, without beer uh, down the line. So uh, I think that you know, beer fans can can take up arms in some ways and uh, be demanding. Uh, of better practices environmentally um, because if they want to keep drinking better beer. Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I, I appreciate all the, uh, the push to consume local product, be it beer or food. Um, and, you know, I think New York state's making a lot of great beer, but one of my favorite things about the rise in New York state, especially farm breweries that are required to use a certain percentage of New York state grown ingredients in their beer is that if I can say to somebody, hey, this beer uses hops and malt that were are from New York State, like the consumer thinks about that and they're like, oh, like this was malted down the road from where I live and these hops are grown close to where I live. And that just gets them thinking about the process more and, and diving deeper into it. And it makes it more relatable for them. And I think it just, you know, it's, uh, it makes the conversation better. Yeah, a personal connection with beer is so important. It, it, it's it goes beyond the Instagram shot and the untapped check in. Like it, I, I think if you can really recognize like where your money is going and what your money is supporting every time you plunk down ten bucks for a pint or you know twenty bucks for a six pack or like whatever it is these days. Um, yeah, I don't buy beer, so I have no idea. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's you, one, you of, one of those houses. It, I should I should come visit. Yeah, man. no, it's, it's it's one of the perks that I have as uh, as as a journalist. I get a lot of a lot of stuff sent for for samples and everything. But uh, um, you know, but but I think that if people know where their money is going, it forges a deeper connection with what's in their glass. And Megan, in terms of selling, you know, we talked about how you guys uh, set up the store from before dinner, dinner, after dinner um, styles of beer. Um, how, do you, how do you sell beer? Are people coming in asking for the newest, coolest thing? Are you guys saying, oh, we just tried this, it's really great? I mean, is there a typical customer, you know, customer interaction? Uh, I would say that there's, uh, well, there's two answers to that. We're in a really unique location. We're in Grand Central, as we've established, um, and world trade to a certain extent where people are, they're on a timeline, right? And they've got three minutes to do, talk to you, to get the beer and to get out of the store max 
Um, in that case, you know, we really just try and nail down exactly what beers we want to sell for that day for certain scenarios and put it into your hand. And, you know, much like you're talking about, it's amazing that our customers at this point trust us to have curated a selection and to know their tastes. You know, so many of our customers are repeat customers, which is amazing. Um, that they know that we're going to put the best beer for what they like to drink into their hands. Um, I would say the the other scenario we have, and it's like my favorite kind of customer who typically comes in either on the weekend or in the afternoons and has got a little bit of time to kill, uh, and they just want to pick your brain, you know, and have a conversation about beer and learn about what you're into, and then we in turn can learn about what they're into and come to a decision on what is going to be the perfect beer for them for this day for what they're doing later, you know, and I was just in the store on, you know, when would that have been? Yesterday? Um, and a guy came in and was kind of quiet and, you know, minding his own business and just happened to say like, Hey, have you heard of this brewery that just opened in Ohio? I think it's like a brew dog thing or something like that. I was like, well, you know, luck would have it. I was there visiting family a couple weeks ago. Let me tell you all about it. This was really cool and blah, 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 blah. And those are the kind of interactions that I love to have. Right. Because it's for, you know, for me, it's exciting just to talk about things that I'm excited about and things that I'm really passionate about. Uh, and for them, it's amazing because it's putting a face to an experience. It's putting a face to someone who's been there, who's checked it out. And, you know, for me, that's 10 times better than a Yelp review. I'd rather talk to somebody who's been there and done it and whose opinion I trust than, you know, some anonymous person online who's just angry that, you know, it took 10 minutes to get their beer instead of nine, you know? So th those are my favorite kind of interactions is to really pick somebody's brain and just listen to what they're saying and maybe give them three safe bets and something out of left field that I think they might like, but that they'd never reach for. No. You're my new beer guru. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to lead you into some weird places. <laughs> so on that note, she's talking about BrewDog. So like I'm, uh, I like the beers we've had so far and, um, you know, Brute IPA I'm intrigued by. You know, I, I thought when you first said it, even though I'd read your newsletter, I thought, I thought you said brewed IPA. And I'm like, wow, they're actually using the word brewed in beer. <laughs> what would that be? And I was like, maybe someone's, who's going to make that's, a brewed IPA? That's, that's the new style. That's the After independence, one, yeah. it's, is your beer brewed or not? Uh, yeah. It's, I only drink things that are brewed. You yeah. know, it's like cold brew coffee. It's like Personally, cold I'm brew. into the raw beer myself. It's, uh, yeah. I just want the the four main ingredients just served to me separately. In a glass of yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> the cold the cold brewed beer, you know. Which I, I don't know even joke. Somebody's uh, going to do that for real. Like that's been the big thing with April Fool's Day every year is like the brewers who are like, "Oh, we're doing a pork chop beer." Like, aren't we funny on April Fool's Day? And it's like, come on, fellas. Like somebody's already done that, and if they're not, they're going to soon. So like, yeah, it's uh, raw beer is going to be a like thing it. soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, the one thing that really intrigued, I mean, I think it's fun that there is a new take on the IPA. Um, the one thing I'm really curious about, I suppose, in terms of IPA is, or in terms of brewed IPA is, is, is this going to be like the next New England, you know, quote unquote, New England style IPA? Um, is this going to be something that takes the kind of brewing community by storm and everybody's obsessed with it? Or is it going to be kind of a short lived fad? Black IPA, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is this the next Cascadian? Cascadian. I'm sorry. I still like oh, American IPA. Dark Ale? I'm sorry, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's fun, especially in the lower ABV iterations. You know, it's easy to drink and tasty. Um, I was kind of surprised at how quickly it spread around the country. 
I feel like with New England style IPA, that was a several year process before it really hit the West Coast and became a thing there. Um, but this felt like a matter of months before it traversed the country, and we were seeing. I mean, is is, is there like a style section now for brute IPA? It's not at GABF, yeah. but uh, it probably will be soon enough. It, it's it has yeah, everybody's making it at this point. Everybody's really excited. And and the cool thing about it, is, as I've written in the magazine, um, we did one of the, the early articles on this, which I was, I was thankful for, um, is that there there's no set process for it yet. So when Kim at Social Kitchen started using this enzyme, he was adding it during the fermenter, uh, uh, during fermentation, but they also reused their yeast, and he didn't want this enzyme contaminating his yeast. So now he's putting it into the fermenter, or I'm sorry, now he's putting it into his mash uh, as he's starting... Um, um, uh, the brew process so that uh, it's not necessarily getting down to zero Play-Doh um, uh, like he had hoped. But uh, everybody's trying different things with it now. And now that this sort of door has been unlocked, uh, all brewers are just rushing to be like, all right, well, how can I put my own twist on this as well? And we're already seeing the fruited brute IPA. I think uh, we've got one of those here today. Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. Uh, yeah, Cane Brewing down in, in Jersey, they just did a peach and something puree brewed IPA for their seventh anniversary. And that, to me, speaks volumes that a brewery putting out an anniversary beer, uh, one of these seminal beers, is doing something that is uh, on a style that is less than a year old in the known world right now. I think it's, I, I, I don't know if it's going to go the way of black IPA or white IPA or the others, but I think for right now, this is, this is an exciting time to be trying this style. And maybe because it's not dark, people, it'll catch <laughs> yeah. on. There's still an issue of dark versus light. What's this, this next beer that we're, we're drinking? Oh, I just I, I was down at Treadwell Park in uh, uh, near the World Trade Center uh, before I came over here, and I picked up uh, an old-school West Coast IPA because I thought I'd be be novel and different. Uh, and this is just Knee Deep's... Uh, I'm not actually familiar with that style. Could you tell me uh, about it? So it, it, it's clear. Young. Uh, it's bitter on the finish. Uh, it has oh, that, a pine my tongue hurts. and a little bit of dankness to it as well. Uh, I'd refer you to 2005. Uh, to she was not, not born then. Yeah, so this is this is just knee deep. Uh, this is their, this is, uh, this is great. Their West Coast IPA, and God, when I saw it on tap, I got really excited because I, I I don't drink a lot of the milkshake stuff. Like I, I think it, it can be fun, um, but when I can see a crystal clear West Coast IPA that is unadorned and done the way that our grandparents demanded it, damn it, <laughs> um, I'm I'm just a sucker for it. So that that's that's why I I, I brought a crowler of it and. Uh, uh, Where'd you but get it? Should, Where'd you get it on draft? Uh, Treadwell Park. Oh, uh, great! Down in, and uh, uh, yeah. and Becerra. And yeah, likes beer. Yeah, and does like beer. Uh, yeah, so they they have a crowler station. As you can leave, you can get any beer that you want for uh, for a lot of money. I briefly considered bringing <laughs> a, a barrel aged Scotch ale. Because uh, that was actually like really intriguing to me, and then they're like, "Yeah, the crowler price is forty five dollars," and I was like, "Oh, I don't like Jimmy that much." Um, <laughs> So I got the more affordable uh, West Coast IPA, and uh, uh, I'm digging it. But what, what's the fruited uh, brute IPA that you we guys have one brought? from Fair State, who are out of Minnesota. Yeah, those guys are great. They make a fantastic pilsner, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and they, I mean, I guess they've been in the New York market for maybe almost a year now. Yeah, um, but but yeah, they they do great stuff, and we have a non-fruited and a fruited brute from them. Ooh, I feel like you guys are really lucky because you're you're, you're really more of a bottle shop. I think about when you have a pub or a restaurant, you've only got a certain number of, of draft lines. And I remember a few years ago, I felt that I, I couldn't keep up with all the new breweries because I couldn't carry that many different 
different different beers, you know. But you guys, how many do you have usually in the store? Like four hundred different beers. I wouldn't say that. I mean, at one time, uh, we've got room on the shelves for like just around a hundred different unique beers, um, and we have six lines um, at both locations. Um, but I think kind of the blessing that we didn't necessarily plan on is that both stores are very tiny, and we don't have a ton of room for back storage. Um, so as soon as something runs out, we need something to take its place. And so we're constantly just churning through inventory. And, you know, it means getting probably more deliveries than most people would like for a, a store of that size. But it's really been super helpful for us in that we just don't have a ton of stuff sitting around. And so we can kind of keep up, you know, it, more or less. I, w- I often have the same sentiment that you have. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, everything is passing me by that we need. And, you know, we just don't have space for this. But there will always be another, you know release next week so it's fine <laughs> but you're lucky so your customers really trust you now that they know that they're going to get a lot of good choices they For probably the get to try more things in, in most other places i mean i can't think of another place where i i mean every beer you've let me taste today i've never tried so yeah you guys are awesome it's Thanks. an embarrassment of riches and john yeah. just a shout out to your professionalism we, we did a show a couple summers ago at uh, <laughs> wnyc together yeah and john comes on of course with a, a blazer and a bow tie that's right and I said, John, you look great. And he looks at me and he says, Jimmy, you got to dress for the job you want. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh. I'm sorry I didn't get dressed up for the show today. I'm but it's schlump. radio, so, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. No, you got a bow tie on. You always have yeah, a bow tie. There it is. And I think you mentioned you talk about handcrafted. Do you actually get hand handcrafted bow ties from Vermont, don't it's you? It's not handcrafted. They're hand-sewn. But, like, yeah, there's a small company in Vermont that's uh, actually in Middlebury that's not far... Uh, they're near Long Trail and the Cabot Creamery and all. It's it's you know it's the Bowtie District, and um, <laughs> but you know but I make the point in the book that you know if you want to spend your money the right way and you know where your dollars are going, it goes back to what we were saying about beer. Um, you know you can't necessarily do it with an iPhone. You can't necessarily do it with a car. You can't necessarily do it with a lot of other things in our life. But you know if there are things that you can do, if it's t-shirts or bow ties or anything else, uh, it feels good when you spend money on things where you know that the money is going and supporting. You know, good people. Same thing like going to a good bar and spending your money there, or a bottle shop going there, as opposed to going to a to a chain or going to something like that. You know, and that's that's a theme that I can agree on is supporting local. And um, we'll have more 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 talk about that on the rest of the shows this year. We got a lot coming up every Tuesday at five. We're back, Beer Sessions Radio. And you guys, let's just go through. Uh, we we got to close out, but just again, say your names and uh, your affiliations. Justin Phillips from Beer Table, Rotary Club. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Sachs will be Beer Table. No, Evan. Beer table. Uh, John Hall from Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, the new book, Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint, and the podcast, Steal This Beer. All right. Well, thanks for coming out, guys. Big shout out to new engineer, Matt Patterson. We got a, a new intern, uh, Dylan, and our producer, Justin Kennedy. Thanks for putting together the show. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Welcome back, Woo. Jim. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.